Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Definitely have an interesting interview here for you today. I am very excited to have Lou Ferrante on the show with me. He is the international best-selling author of the book Mob Rules, What the Mafia Can Teach the Legitimate Businessman, He created, wrote, produced, and hosted a series for the Discovery Channel about maximum security prisons around the world. It was called Inside the Gangster's Code. He's written a number of books, but his latest is called Borgata, Rise of Empire, A History of the American Mafia, Volume 1, in what will be a trilogy. Great to have you here with me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Eric, for having me. Yes, my pleasure. So you write in your book's introduction that this trilogy is the very first mafia history written by someone who has lived the life. Can you talk about that? What has your life been like that gives you this insight into mafia history? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Queens, New York. And when I was a teenager, uh, I I robbed cars, eventually had a chop shop where I would sell the parts to auto body collision shops in the area. And then at some point or another, I got involved in hijacking, hijacking trucks. And then I had my own crew of heist and hijackers, heist men and hijackers within the Gambino crime family. At the time, uh, Queens was, when I was growing up in the in the 80s, Queens was the central headquarters of the Gambino family. John Gotti took over the family. He had killed Paul Castellano, the former Don of the family, in front of Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan and killed his underboss as well. So the power shifted from sort of like Brooklyn and Staten Island to Queens, smack in the middle of where I was already you know, a car thief and eventually a hijacker. And at some point or another, I got involved with the mob and we ran an armed robbery crew. I did myself. I was the head of the crew within the Gambino crime family. 
Uh, I was eventually indicted by the FBI, uh, the Secret Service, and then Nassau County Organized Crime Task Force. So I had three indictments. I went to prison for a long time. I faced life. While I was away, I educated myself. I realized that this was not how I was raised, uh, all the things I had done. Uh, I wasn't brought up. A lot of my friends were brought brought up in, quote unquote, the life, which is the mafia, sort of the term for being raised in the mafia, the mob. We didn't even use the word mafia back then, but they grew up in the life uh, where a lot of us didn't, and I was one who didn't, and I came to it. I was drawn to it. I loved it. I felt it was what I had found, something that spoke to me, that was within me, and I lived that until I went to prison in 1994, and I faced life, as I said, and eventually I copped out to, to my cases. I had William Kunstler, as uh, some, some of your listeners may remember him. He was the radical civil rights attorney. Uh, he rode the buses, the freedom buses uh, down in, I think it was Montgomery, Alabama. He defended Martin Luther King. He defended Malcolm X. He, he negotiated the Attica riots. He went in there to talk to the, the, uh, the inmates when they held guards, prison guards, hostages. He represented the Chicago Seven, and he was my attorney. Uh, there is a biography out there somewhere floating around where they mentioned me as one of the mob guys he had, he had defended because he wasn't really given to taking on mob cases. He took only very few, and he took me on. Uh, so anyway, I got, a, I got away with 13 years uh, on a plea. I did not snitch. I refused to inform on anybody. The reason for the three indictments was pressure to inform on my former associates, and I refused to do that. So I faced uh, faced life. Eventually, they were offering us pleas of 20 years, me and my co-defendants, and we didn't want to take 20 years. We were fighting the case as long as we possibly could, trying to get the plea agreements to plea our offers down to something we could live with. We did not want to roll the dice at trial. And at some point or another, I was offered 13 years if my co-defendants took you know, 10, 9, 8, 7 down the line. I was considered sort of the quote-unquote mastermind, the guy who put the plans together, came up with the heist and activated everyone. So they basically wanted to give me the most time. So my co-defendants were happy with that. We took the plea. Um, and then while I was away, we realized that the main snitch against us went into the witness protection program and he had violated the program, was thrown out of the program. So when we had taken those pleas, the government really didn't have a case against us as far as we know. Uh, we didn't learn that till later. So it was the best thing that happened to me though, because I had all those years to turn my life around. I eventually studied. I eventually picked up my first book in prison. I became an avid reader. I fell in love with books. I had never read a book cover to cover before in my life. I came from a family where no one went to college. Half of us never even graduated high school. So it was a big deal if you graduated high school, but I never went to college, university, any of that stuff. And now I'm reading a book. You know, I was literate. I went to I went to school when I was a kid, but you know, I cheated my way through school. Everything was a scam. I ran a chop shop while I was in high school. So I mean, I wasn't really concerned with homework until the morning, right before the class, I would copy someone else's. So I always got by that way. So in prison, I read my first book and the vocabulary was big for me in the beginning. It was hard. It was a tough thing for me. Uh, it was a big obstacle. Vocabulary words. I didn't have a big vocabulary. So I had to look words up. I bought a dictionary for, for a stamp or a couple of stamps, whatever it was at the time. And I would look words up and then study them at night. And then I, each book got a little easier to read. And at some point or another, I was reading 18 hours a day and I fell in love with books and then eventually taught myself how to write by reading. Uh, every, I, real, I, I came to the conclusion that every major 
work of, let's say, fiction. I wasn't today. I don't read a lot of fiction. I read mostly histories, biographies. But at at one point or another, I did get into like nineteenth century fiction, which I enjoyed. And I realized that like everything Tolstoy knows about writing is in the pages of Anna Karenina, is in the pages of War and Peace. Everything uh, Dostoevsky knows about writing is in the pages of The Idiot, is in the pages of the Brothers Karamazov. And with that, I was able to then read those books and realize and, 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 and look closely at how authors develop a plot, how they introduce a character, how they exit a character. And I would take notes in the margin. And at some point or another, I taught myself how to write that way. Um, so I, I felt like it was better than any reading class that I could have ever enrolled in or, or found. Um, I wasn't one who could go to school. Uh, but anyway, I came out of prison. At some point or another, I was leaving prison. And they asked me what I intended to do with my life. And they expected me to say a construction job or something at best, which is what normally people in my world do. They go back into something. Someone gets them in a union or something or or puts them to work on a construction project or something with the connections we had. And I said, I'm going to be an international best-selling author. And everyone was hysterical at the table. They said, that's the best one we heard yet. And uh, here I am today. That's exactly what I am. My last book, Mob Rules, was translated into 20 languages. It is an international bestseller. Um, And my new book, uh, Borgata, the Borgata trilogy, will hopefully be the same. Wow, you you really manifested your dream into reality, huh? I did. I did. Um, I think... I think I had, I had the time to do it in prison, to, 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 to work on myself. And by the grace of God, I had the realization, first, that there was a God. I feel like there is a higher power for those, those of us who believe in different religions, those of us who just believe in some type of higher power, some type of natural justice, some type of karma. I think my belief fits into all of the above, that I was being punished for something. Uh, I did bad things, and I'm now in a prison cell, so I'm being punished by a higher power. But at the same time, when I made strides to improve myself and started to read and fell in love with books and asked for more books and continued to read and tried to teach myself how to write, I felt like that same power that was punishing me began to reward me for the things I was doing because I felt like had I never come here, I'd have never found this. So it was almost a blessing in disguise. And because of that, I was able to change my life around. So, you know, I think I think I seized the opportunity of having all of that idle time to do something with myself. There's no distractions. You don't have to worry. When you're in a prison cell, you don't have to worry about um, bills. You don't have to worry about the electric bill, the water bill. You don't have to worry about a mortgage. You don't have to worry about a car payment. You don't have to worry about clocking in and clocking out. You just basically wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night. And what you do in between that is up to you, You know, with, with notwithstanding the prison rules, but it's up to you how you use your idle time. And so a lot of people just play cards all day, which is what I did in the beginning. But at some point I said, I, I want to use this time wisely. And I thought I would do, I faced life in prison at one point or another. An accumulation of all the charges, had I blown trial, I would have been given life. I have friends who were charged with the same things and they got 70 years, 80 years, 120 years, 130 years, and they're still away 30 years later, 35 years later. So you do you do get those numbers if you play a game and and you lose. So I didn't know, but I did make the decision that if I ever get out of here, whether I do or I don't, I'm going to better myself. And if I do, all the more better. And uh, and I thank God that I here I am here today, out on the other side. So when you got out of prison, were you approached by your former colleagues? Yeah, I saw them all. Yeah, they. You know, you you. you 
when you do time and you keep your mouth shut, you're an asset. You know, they want you and they want you back. So there was definitely a lot of people who thought I was coming back. And then it was a rude awakening for a lot of them where they said, I'm done with that. You know, I moved on. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I approached the bosses and the underbosses while I was in jail and told them, look, if I ever get out of here, I don't know if I'm leaving here in a pine box. If I do, that's fine. I made these decisions. I'll suffer the consequences. But if I ever get out, I just want to be left alone. And with all the people who snitch today, nowadays, um, it's hard to tell somebody who's not snitching, no, you're not allowed to leave. So they all just wished me luck. So I kind of like cleared it with everybody when I was away. Uh, when I came home, there were still people who didn't get the memo. And they, they, you know, they welcomed me back. And, and then, again, it was a rude awakening for them to realize that I was done with that life. Um, some of them didn't want any part of me anymore. They really had no use for me. So that was, it was easy to tell that maybe they weren't real friends. But some of the ones who were real friends were just happy for me. You know, I have a friend today who's a captain in one of the families today, still active. He's in prison at the moment, but uh, he wished me luck, gave me a big hug and a kiss. And he says, anything you need from me, I'm here for you. You know, so we were friends first, business partners second. And he was happy that I was making a change in my life and going the right way. And he knew I never snitched. So there was no reason not to, you know, there was no reason for that to bother him. You know, he had every every good wish for me. Where, may I ask, did, did you fit in? Uh, in the hierarchy of the organization? I mean, I, you know, I didn't, didn't. I, I ran my own crew uh, and basically everyone took orders from me and my own crew. You know, I, I put everybody together. I came up with the crimes and, you know, the heists and stuff. I got the tips. And that was accurate when they charged me with that in, in, in federal court. They said I was, I was the, the, the head of the, you know, the, the gang, the crew. And I answered to the heads of the family, the heads of the Gambino crime family. I spent most of my time, the better part of six or seven years, in and out of Peter Gotti's house, Peter Gotti being the older brother of John Gotti, John Gotti being the Don of the Gambino crime family. So his older brother was a captain. Uh, I was in and out of his house every day. There were other people in the family who were, had ranking positions I was close with. Um, but I was still young. You know, I was still making my bones. I probably... Uh, had I not gone to jail, I would have been initiated into the family, and then I would have moved up like everybody else. And then had I come home after serving uh, all that time, they welcomed me back. So I would have immediately been initiated and maybe fast-tracked for promotion because they, you, you're a major asset. If you did you did all your time, you kept your mouth shut, they know who you are now. But I walked away from it by then. So although I was around the biggest people in the Gambino crime family and knew people from every other family in New York – you know, I was still a young guy coming up. I went away when I was 25, faced the rest of my life in prison. Um, shortly after I went away, the guys I hung around with involved in that life all got straightened out, which is the uh, the term we use for getting initiated. They were brought into the family. They became made members. And then uh, and they stayed in touch with me while I was away. But that that's that goes back to some of the ones that I, I said I spoke to when I came home. Some were happy for me. Some, you know, had no interest in remaining friends with me when they realized that there was nothing to get out of me business-wise. Interesting. You do feel, right, that, that you have an advantage as an Italian-American in writing about the history of the mob. You have insights, you write, that academics, for example, yeah, well, don't have. Yeah, I lived it. It's, so it's, ex, it's experience, right? I mean, Einstein said every all, all knowledge comes from experience. I believe Einstein said that. He might have got it from Schopenhauer. But um, experience is everything. And I had the experiences. So 
I would be, when I was in prison, I read a lot of books that got me away from the life I left. I lived. So I lived a life of crime. My whole life was a crime in progress until the day I went to jail from when I was a kid, from when I was in my early teens to 25, when I went to prison and faced life, my whole life was a crime in progress. Um, and then I'm in jail and I don't want to look back at crime. I don't, once my mind shifted and I started reading, I read history, I read biographies, I read the law, I read uh, science, I read philosophy, and from ancient times to modern times, everything in between. And a lot of the guys around me who did read, so not everybody read in prison, but the few who did read, I should say, not a lot of the guys, but of the few who did read, a lot of them read true crime. And you would hear people reading books about the mafia, blurting out regularly phrases like, bullshit, no way, never happened, no, come on. You know, and you'd, you'd know that they were reading something that somebody miswrote, somebody got it wrong, because these guys lived it with me. These are, these are seasoned, hardened mobsters who have not only lived a life from when they were young, and some of them are old now, but they've been in and out of prison their whole lives. We know the life. We, if you've lived it, you know it, you understand it, and you know things that are real. So I think that at some point or another, when I was writing this history, uh, or when I was commissioned to write it, I realized that I was the perfect person because not only am I a writer and a lover of histories, and I and now a genuine historian, I'm, I'm happy to say, but also too, I was somebody who has the experiences, and it's very difficult to understand and write about something if you've never experienced it. For example, I would never dream of writing a history of the Oval Office. I've never been in the Oval Office. That should be left to people who were either in the Oval Office through at least one presidency, if not more. And those people usually do come out of that and they write books about it and they're very enlightening books because they lived it. Um, so why then do people, academics often, write about the mafia? And, and the answer is obvious because who else is going to write it? You're not going to get a lot of criminals who know how to write or know how to write histories. So that's, that's sort of why it's never been done before. Um, now, I will say that I tip my hat to a lot of the academics who did a fine job. There were quite a few books I read that were written really well, that captured things really well, the feelings and stuff. Um, but there were a lot who got things wrong. And if you don't have that extra sense that those, those experiences to tell you when something is wrong, you just don't know. So for example, if I was reading a history and it said that Albert Anastasia did this or Frank Costello did that or, or Lucky Luciano and Mylansky did this or that, I knew right away if it was if it was either true, could have been true, or definitely never happened. You know, you just know the world, you know the life. So I was able to not only point that out throughout the book, and I get deep into the intrigues, I get deep into the politics, I get I go through the gory stuff, obviously, which is good reading. You know, it's the casual stuff we like, most of us as readers. But I also break down if I tell you something's wrong, I don't just tell you to trust me. I live this life. I break it down for the reader and I explain to, to, to the reader why this could never have happened. And I want the reader to start to think like I do so that as the reader moves forward, they already have an extra sense as they learn more and more from me of what's true and what's not. So when they maybe pick up another book after mine, they'll know if they hear something or see something or you know, on a documentary even possibly perhaps, if not a book, and know if it was real or know if it could have happened. So I bring the reader along the ride and I go through these sort of the, this, this deductive thinking with the reader so that they know. But I don't do it in a pontificating way. I'm never like, 
you know, way out there. I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, where people go, oh, I'm lost in this stuff. You know, I get in and out of it. This way you keep the, you know, you keep the story moving. You know, I know, I know how to write where my book, like, as you know, as, as you said, my last book is an international bestseller. I know how to write and keep a story moving, but I also want the reader to learn as the reader goes with me, you know, on this journey. And a lot of people have contacted me already and said they appreciated that, especially. We will be back after these brief messages. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So there has been criticism from some in the Italian-American community about how its members are portrayed in film and television. Yes. That was uh, famously an issue in the first Godfather film, if, if I remember right. Did, did that affect how you approached this book? Yes. I was, I was definitely cognizant of that, and I made it a point 
to, first of all, distinguish in the author's note, as soon as you open the book, that the Italian people are responsible for some of the greatest advancements in humankind, whether it be da Vinci, Michelangelo, uh, Marconi. I go on and on through all these, Boccaccio, Petrarch, uh, Machiavelli even. Uh, although he's, you know, he's, he's got a bad sort of like connotation to his name. It's his writings are brilliant. So there are so many Italians, uh, even Pavarotti music. There are so many tremendous, uh, uh, musicians, composers and so on and so forth. And there's so much that the Italian people have given to humankind. So I want to make sure in the author's note that I immediately distinguish them, those Italian people with the Italian people I speak of throughout the book, which are the, the, the Italian criminals. And I say that, you know, Italy was known as mother of the arts, mother of the Renaissance, mother of the church, uh, mother of high culture, et cetera, et cetera. But Italy was also mother of the mafia. And a renegade son deserves a look too. And that's what the basis of this book is. So we're looking at sort of this like small clique of Italian people. And then throughout the early chapters, I do explain the Italian-American experience and what the Italians went through in, in, the, in, uh, in the way of discrimination when they first arrived in this country. My own grandparents, we were called the worst names, uh, second to African-Americans. We were the highest group lynched in the South, only second to African-Americans. Uh, and we, we have the title of the biggest, largest mass lynching, which I cover in the book. Uh, that ever took place, which was in New Orleans, which was a mass lynching of Italians. So a lot of that stuff isn't taught in academia, which is, which is, you know, it's quite startling. And also to, I guess it's, it's irritating too, in a sense, because it should be taught. But the Italian American experience is something that most hardworking Italians went through. And when they came through Ellis Island, a lot of them were considered idiots because they couldn't speak English. A lot of them were sent back, uh, back home. And the ones that made it here were treated like dirt. You know, they replaced the, the big Southern Italian immigrant wave into the United States came at the same time as the United States finally got rid of the horrid institution of slavery. And we needed here in this, in this country cheap labor to replace slave labor. And the Italian-Americans were the biggest group at that time who did that, who replaced all of this slave labor for very cheap labor. And they were mistreated along the way. So I always want to make sure that the Italian-American experience is something that is understandable. And why it's not a forced entry into the book, and it's, it's a natural place for it to be, is because the mafiosos in Sicily, specifically, rode in with the Italian immigrant waves and then capitalized on wherever they went. So if, if for example, a large workforce uh, controlled the waterfront in New Orleans, because of their hard work ethic, they were hired mostly by, by uh, management. And at some point or another, the dock is loaded with Italians, the piers, the shipyards. There are so many Italians there that the mob says, who rode in also with these immigrant waves, wow, I could just mobilize these people and, you know, and start to make money by unionizing them, mobilizing them, threatening to, 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 to stop work and stop the fish or, the, or, the, uh, or anything perishable coming off the docks, the vegetables, the, the, fruit, the citrus fruits, and hold up an entire industry that, that fans out across the United States if I don't get my way in some way or another. So a lot of times mobsters used the hardworking, honest Italian-Americans to, to further their own goals. And then what would happen oftentimes is if the mafia did something wrong, 
all Italian Americans were stigmatized because of it. And that, that was very heart wrenching to see, you know, for example, if the, uh, if the mafia killed, uh, in the early days killed a cop in one instance, uh, all of the Italian Americans, hardworking, honest people who just wanted to pour their sweat and tears out for, you know, to build a new nation were punished because of it. And that was sad. So, you know, I wanted, I wanted the average Italian American who's, who's done nothing but good in this country and done nothing but right in this country to be able to pick it up and walk away, not feeling like I've sort of disparaged the entire Italian American name. And that's why I was careful to, to make sure that I got all of that in. And once again, it was a natural inclusion. There was nothing forced about it because it had something to do. It overlapped with the mafia's experiences in America. It was directly connected. Yeah, that makes sense. So why did you decide to call your book Borgata? What is the significance of that? Yeah, Borgata is like um, the Spanish equivalent of like a barrio. Uh, It's sort of like an Italian ghetto or Italian, uh, you know, close-knit, lower-class Italians. It would be the Borgata. And it became sort of like the interpretation for a family, the Borgata and the Mafia family, or we would say it the Brugade, we would, we would pronounce it sometimes. Uh, so it was really the word we used for a while. We wouldn't say the Gambino crime family, or we would say John's Borgata or John's Brugade, uh, or, or maybe if it was um, Vic Amuso of the, of the Lucchese family, Vic's, Vic's Borgata, Vic's Brugade. Uh, so Borgata was sort of like a term we used internally. And it was basically just came from like, you know, uh, an Italian, poorer Italians living somewhere together. That's the initials, the the uh, epistemological set, uh, uh, definition of the word. But it became used in my time and before that for just a mafia family. It would be uh, it would be Eric's Borgata. Eric's Borgata and Louis Borgata would be our Borgatas, our crime families, because we wouldn't use the term crime family. So that's it was the perfect name. When I took a look, it wasn't around. Nobody had used it yet. So I said, this is great. So I called it the Borgata Trilogy. Uh, and each book will be called Borgata. The first one, Rise of Empire. The next one will be Clash of Titans, which is when we get past the initial empire building. And then what happens usually normally in any empire, uh, in the overworld, any empire, whether it be the English, the the Americans, or the Spanish Empire, the, 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 the Greeks, the Romans, etc., there's a time where you grow and then there's a time where people fight internally. And that's what happens next in volume two. Interesting. So what was the, the process like trying to figure out the, the origins of the mafia? How, how far back in time did you have to go? Where do you believe it originated? Um, the process was exhaustive and knocked me out uh, because I just, I wanted to really, really get deep and dig deep and get as deep, deeper than anybody else, anybody else had ever gotten. And it brought me to sometimes books would say the mafia came from feudalism and then there would be a word or two, a sentence or two, and they'd move on to the blood and guts, which is what sells. And there's plenty of blood and guts in my book as well. I won't say there isn't, there is. Um, But Nobody ever really went deep into how and where how, did it really come from feudalism and how? Tell me how. You know, it left more questions than than it did answers. You know, those statements. So I dug deep into feudal society and I read 
crates of books on feudalism. And I found direct comparisons. And I was the first, I think the first one, as far as I know, to make those direct comparisons and lay them out in the early chapters, um, where the relationship between a feudal lord and his vassals is identical to the relationship between a mafia don and his soldiers. The oaths that they took to each other, the code that they have had during feudal times, identical to the mafia code. Uh, the code of mafia's code is sort of like this code of chivalry, honor, loyalty, etc. And those things, I found those things, and I was able to juxtapose them then and now, time and again, to show you that the mafia is basically just a feudal society that exists in our own time. So I was able to get through that, and then also to the deeper, why of all the criminal syndicates throughout the world, and there are so many, uh, the Russian criminals, uh, mafia dons slash oligarchs are very powerful in, in Russia now, as I understand it. And even they can't compare to the Italian mafia and the structure of the Italian mafia. The Albanians have a mafia now. There have been different mafias uh, throughout Africa. When I was in South Africa, there's a sort of mafia running running the uh, the elephant and rhino horn trade, elephant tusk and rhino, rhino horn trade, which gets shipped back to Africa. I'm sorry, from Africa to Asia. So there are all these mafias, but none of them had the sustainability and the structure and the impact as the Sicilian mafia. Why was that? And that came from the Sicilian people. And I established that in the early chapters, how different they were from everyone else, not only in the world, but specifically in Europe, their sense of family, the governments that came and went in Sicily and those how it impacted the people or did not impact the people. I urge every listener that that is that is listening to this to read that if you're interested in how the mafia was formed inside the Sicilian womb and how it was eventually how it came to be and how then it migrated to the United States. I found nothing, and I've read hundreds and hundreds of books on the subject. I found nothing that was able to delve as deep as I have. And it and it took just exhaustive research. And and then being able to condense it and put it into something that's a you know a fairly quick read for people so that they just get it grasp it. I did the work for them, and that's how a reader should a reader should have that luxury of having the author do all the work for them. Well, I did it, and uh, and it's in there, but it's in a concise way where I think the reader, you know, every reader should enjoy it if they're interested in that where it came from and how. Yeah, uh, regarding Sicily, the Italian government at one point, went into Sicily to try and control what they thought was an out-of-control local government. Uh, they thought Sicilians were barbaric and, and basically lived in a state of semi-feudalism. Yes. Uh, so throughout the, throughout the, the Middle Ages and, and, and the Renaissance, Italy was broken up into city-states before the unification of Italy. So we see still, you know, Tuscany, Venice, Lower Italy. We see Calabria, Naples, Bari, and Sicily. So all of these different city states in Italy, on the peninsula specifically, were all in competition with each other, which gave us the great, beautiful architecture we see throughout Italy. You know, the people of Florence wanted to outdo the people of Venice, and you know there was a lot of competitiveness there. And uh, you know, people would vie for the greatest artists and become patrons of the arts. So that was sort of, sort of all the way up and down Italy. Then when Italy was unified, the unification of Italy that was brought about 
physically through Garibaldi's fighting, politically through Mazzini and Cavour. That then Italy was told slash promised that if they fought for Italian to oust the Austrians from Northern Italy and the French from Southern Italy, the French Bourbons, Southern Italy being Southern Italy, the boot, and also to Sicily, then they would have independence and the Sicilians wanted independence. They had been ruled by so many different people throughout the ages, the, the, the Spanish, the French, Greeks, the Romans, different tribes that, that invaded the Roman Empire had a foothold there at different times. So there was always sort of like these invasion forces and they wanted to be independent. They were promised independence. And then after the unification, they said, no, you're part of Italy now. Basically, the new government in Rome, originally Turin, said, you're part of Italy now. And they said, well, no, we don't want to be part of Italy. Who's Italy? And they felt like Italy was their latest overlord. My grandmother is Sicilian. And to this day, you know, until she died, if I said to her and referred to her as an Italian, she would correct me and say, I'm a Sicilian. You know, so the rest of my, my father's family was from Bari. My mother's father was from Naples and her mother was from Sicily. My father's, my mother's father from Naples and my father's family from Bari considered themselves Italians. They had no problem with that. They're Italians. If you said to my grandmother from Sicily, you're Italian, she said no and corrected you. Well, that was symbolic of the entire attitude of all Sicilians around that time. They did not want to be part of the larger Italy. They felt like it was their newest overlord. And who is Italy to tell us they want to conscript us into their army and tell us to fight for you know diplomacy gone awry over here or over there? We don't, we don't agree with this. They want to tax us. Who are they to tax us? We don't, they have no say. They shouldn't have any say in the island. And then at some point or another, there was a vote, like a plebiscite, to bring supposedly to bring Sicily into into the larger Italy, like if this was going to decide it. And most Sicilians thought that the vote was fixed. They felt like, no, we all wanted to vote against it. And how how did it pass? We don't we don't understand this. So Sicilians always had this sort of like lingering grudge up until present day. You know, after World War II, there was still a separatist movement of Sicilians in Sicily who wanted to separate from Italy. And they thought that the war would have gotten that done for them, you know, when when things change after after the war. Obviously, all of Eastern Europe changed, and Italy thought maybe it was an opportunity for them to break away from Italy, and it was a large separatist movement that was eventually squashed. So the Sicilians always had that sort of independent feeling uh, that sort of like replicated the city-states of Italy, how they all felt independent. And believe it or not, that carried over to the states as well. When I was a kid, people would ask you, where are you from in Italy, meaning where is my family from? And being able to say three places increased my chances of being acceptable to at least three different people, types of peoples, uh, while most just considered me a mutt. You know, I wasn't even considered a purebred because I'm from different places in Italy. So Italy is only Italy to the tourist. I make that clear in my book. So at some point, Italy realizes that Sicily doesn't want to be part of them. And instead of realizing it and trying to find out how they could help Sicily in terms of their literacy, their illiteracy rate was extremely high. Their poverty rate was extremely high. The Sicilians was, and they had a very, very bad infrastructure. All of the, all of the systems, all of the um, institutions designed to improve life were corrupted. So instead of Italy proper looking at that, and saying, how could we fix Sicily? They basically just came off high-handed and stomped in there and tried to crush Sicily until it would you know, bend them into shape. 
and they would fall in line with Italy's values, with Italy's political process, with Italy's attitude. And that did not happen so fast. It's very difficult to take a people who've been very, very isolated, uh, even though they were ruled by so many different peoples throughout, throughout the ages. None of those governments ever really was overbearing on the Sicilian people. They let them do as they pleased, and they wanted that to continue. So now Italy wants to push Sicily around, and there was a lot of pushback in Sicily. And that's sort of how the mafia was created. Uh, you'll see that in my book, how I how I sort of like outline how that was a driving force also to create resistant mo- resistance movements within Sicily that were led by the mafia. And people were happy that somebody was pushing back uh, so just just like you know, just like if a country is invaded, and uh, there's sort of like a guerrilla force, you know, a, a band of guerrillas that are pushing back against the invaders. Those people are going to be rooting for the guerrillas. So so basically, that was you know that was sort of like the high handed attitude from Italy only pushed Sicily deeper into itself and created more and more of what became known as the mafia. So where does the word mafia originate? Um, I'm glad you asked that because I found it to be of a lot of people feel who came up with the best, took the best shot at this and tried to to root out the etymological, um, I said epistemological earlier, I think I meant etymological, the etymological root of the word. A lot of people who tried to figure that out said it was of Arab origin. And the Arabs were in Sicily for a while, a couple hundred years or a few hundred years they were there. And they had a large, strong presence in Western Sicily specifically. And you could still see churches in Sicily today that look like mosques. And the Arabs who were pushed into the Western regions of Sicily were the biggest resistance movements. They led the biggest resistance movements towards the new government in Italy at one point or another. And a lot of people will say, well, it came from Arabic words, mafia. Uh, it came from a, a word that means proud horse. It came from a word that means cave dweller. It came from a word that means um, uh, bandit. And they use all these Arab words to say where it came from. And then I was able to pinpoint a word that nobody has ever pointed out yet. And I believe that's where it came from. Knowing the Arab Berbers who were pushed into Arab Berbers being Arabs from northern uh, North North Africa were pushed into the western regions of Sicily and they led big resistance movements. I was able to find out that they were sort of like considered protectors and defenders of the people because they were the only ones pushing back at one point or another in western Sicily in the places like Palermo and Agrigento where the mafia originated. And at, around the Victorian times those of us who are familiar with Victorian ages uh, and the, the siege of Khartoum, we might remember Go- General Gordon Pasha, who was the guy who fought the Mahdi at Khartoum and lost to the Mahdi, Muhammad ah- Ahmad, I think his name was. And he fought the Mahdi and lost. And the Mahdi was basically the person who said he was descended from Muhammad and he was here to save the people. And every now and then in Islamic culture, somebody arises during tough times of resistance to something, to an outside government of some sort, somebody arises and considers and calls himself the Mahdi. And the Mahdi, the people who follow the Mahdi were known as the modest regime or the Madia. And the Madia is only a single letter away from mafia, 
And that I believe to be the origin of the word mafia. And it comes from the same place where the Arabs were, at the same place the Arabs believe themselves to be, Arab Sicilians that is, the strongest resistance movement to the new government in Italy. And that's when the mafia starts to really appear for the first time in history. So I trace it to the word Mahdi, and I, I leave it for future historians to debate and to pro- possibly provide more evidence. But I make a strong case in Borgata uh, that that's where it came from. We will return after this quick break. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Rivas Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Rivas Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And back again. Is, is there a, a figure in Sicilian history that could be considered the first mafia don? Yes and no. I mean, there starts to eventually the, the 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 academic early chapters eventually morph into storytelling, where faces come to the fore. So we don't really know who the original ones were because there was no recorded history of that in the early times. But of the of the new faces we start to see that come to the fore as the mafia starts to come into view more and more. There are a few people, but. It's hard to tell who's who and what the interrelationships are between them because there was no really record of this. You know, there's no courts, there's no stenographer rather taking notes at meetings, um, you know, recording the meetings and, and taking minutes rather at the meetings that they had together. So it's it's up to us to piece it together. So what happens is as soon as faces begin to come to the fore, I grasped onto them. And these are the people that, you know, these are the first ones we meet. And what I tried to do was I tried to isolate incidents and events in Sicily where the people involved then migrated to the United States so I could follow that to the United States and then bring the reader along across the Atlantic Ocean and watch them pick up their new lives here. So I honed in on those who did end up in the United States, but there were you know quite a few faces that started to pop up around the same time. And it, it is interesting, uh, but it's, you know, it's like a lot of times it's just, you know, this area is mafia infested. You know that there's a strong patriarch who runs a big clan, mostly blood family and then extended family through relationships and then intermarriage. And then that particular person usually holds court in the local piazza and everything is run through him. The entire local government goes through him elected officials, if there are any, or any officials who are appointed. Any disputes between families, between people have to be brought to him. And sort of like, then you start to see who him is and faces start to emerge out of the out of the dust, out of the clouds. And then we start to see who these people are. And then as soon as they start to come out, I grasp onto them. And I, I explained that in the very beginning, you know, the, the, the moment, it's almost like the Homeric epic. We don't know who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. We have ideas, but we don't know exactly who wrote it. And then we don't know 
you know, we assume Troy was real, the Battle of Troy. Something happened somewhere. We have that idea. We've dug up stuff that shows that there was a battle there. But, you know, was Achilles there? Who really was Achilles? Was he half God? Was he half man? But you go through all that Greek history, and at some point you start to grasp onto Socrates, Aristotle, uh, and you start to see Plato, and you start to see real faces. And that interested me, you know, when when tales became real. And I tried to follow that same sort of thread in Borgata. Yeah, and then at some yeah. point or another, it becomes people who you can base what's happening on fact. There's evidence, there's recordings, there's recorded history. There's, you know, there's, there's testimony, there's, there's, there's books written that we still have today that are extant. So that's something that, yeah, I wanted to follow the same thread I wanted to take it from pre-recorded history up through recorded history. Uh, and you have to do it in a concise way where you keep it moving and you get to the blood and guts as fast as possible so you don't lose any readers. And I, I think I achieved that. So far, So far, I've had a lot of good feedback, and it seems I have. That was, that was a tough part for me, though. How much to include, how much to keep it, you know, where, where I could still keep it moving. You, I didn't want to write a dry academic book. I wanted to write something that moves that, you know, the intrigues, the goriness, the blood and guts. I wanted to get that all in, but I also wanted to make sure it was filled with facts. Uh, and it shows you how, you know, the evolution of the mafia came about. And I hope I achieved it. As of now, it seems I have. Yeah, for sure. So I want to ask you about the American mafia. It might be surprising to some that the first mafia families in the United States made New Orleans their home, right? Yeah, I'm, I was part of that world, and it was surprising to me. I always thought of New York as sort of like the Rome of the Roman Empire, and everything else was just like a satellite state somewhere, you know, far-flung uh, provinces of the empire, like Chicago or wherever, Detroit. And then I realized when I, was, when I was writing that New Orleans, Louisiana, was sort of the Plymouth Rock of the mafia. That's where they really migrated first. And the reason being was Italian-Americans who wanted work migrated to New Orleans. As I said, after the institution of slavery was, was, was uh, eradicated, we in this country needed cheap labor and the, Italian, the Southern Italians went there where, the, where, the, where there was work. And they also gravitated towards Louisiana as opposed to New York because they came from a Mediterranean climate. So it's very difficult to acclimate to nine feet of snow in the winter you know, and, and, and having to chop down trees and throw logs on the fire all winter just to, you know, get through it and have chicken soup. And, you know, these people are on a Mediterranean diet with a Mediterranean sun shining on them. They went to Louisiana. They had the same climate and they worked under the same sort of the same, the same sun. And so that once the workers were there, the mafia also followed, as I said, they always follow the, the, the Italian American waves of immigrants because they want to be around their own, it's easiest to operate around their own, easiest to hide, easiest to, to, to maneuver, etc. And then also, too, they found in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, to be one of the most lawless places probably on earth. And I, I document that as well. New Orleans was always known from the time it was in Napoleonic hands. Uh, Napoleon, uh, you know, during the Louisiana Purchase, sold it to us. In the United States, and we, we you know we we got it, but it was always known as a lawless place. There were pirates and smugglers there during the American Revolution, uh, and before and after the American Revolution, and they continued to be be like that. Where 
the police force was corrupt and they'd leave a body laying dead in the street for three or four days before they even picked it up or bothered to pick it up. Uh, the cops were involved in the bordellos. The cops were involved with the casinos. Uh, everybody was for sale. And the Sicilian mafiosos arrived here and they were like, son of a gun. I, you know, I feel like the boat went around the circle and left us off back in Sicily. This is great. You know, this, we've got a lawless place. We need only uh, organize the criminals and tame it to our liking. And that's basically what they did. You know, the Italians, the Sicilians who came with this understanding of organized crime, then organized crime in New Orleans and Louisiana at, uh, at large. And they were very successful at it. And they corrupted everybody. And they just basically controlled it. And that's sort of like where it all began. And the families in New York was something that started to emerge a little later. They might have been there on a smaller scale from the very beginning, but nothing big. The first big family was in New Orleans, and it made sense. That's where these Sicilians migrated for work, and that's where the climate suited them, and uh, that's where the mafia followed. And they found a lawless town, which was absolutely perfect for them. So they got away with a lot of murders there too, until at some point or another, I discuss in the book where they they killed the wrong guy, and it was it turned out to be the biggest mass lynching in American history in New Orleans. One of the things I found interesting in your book, you you point out that it was not a coincidence that Italian-Americans often worked in the fruit business, Uh, importers, exporters, fruit stand operators. And a reason for that was because the citrus industry was huge in Sicily, and it was just a natural profession for Sicilians to choose. I remember this, this coming up on the show before. In past episodes, we've done about the black hand, the Italian version of the black hand. Yes, they, the the mob did dominate, specifically in New Orleans, they dominated the citrus industry. So there was something called the French market, which was vegetables and, and, and uh, fruits and vegetables. And it was a big place where everybody came to buy and sell their vegetables and, and, and fruits. So the French market was eventually, because it originally was French for the most part, obviously the French, we all know the, the, the great French influence in New Orleans. But eventually, that became sort of like the Sicilian market. The Sicilians completely took it over and dominated it, Sicilian merchants. And then at some point or another, the Sicilians took over the docks and they controlled the citrus and the vegetables coming into New Orleans. And then starting out, the first main sta- the first major stop was obviously the, the French market. And then it fanned out across the South a lot of, and even the United States in some, some, some instances, this all of this, all of these, this merchandise and the mafia was so good at it. I mean, they came, the lemon groves of Sicily were, were a big, big mainstay for the Italian mafia, the Sicilian mafia in, in Sicily. They figured that they figured out how, if they could, if they could control the property owner and then basically they could control the lemon groves and then they control everything around the lemon grove business, meaning not only production, but transportation uh, managerial roles, auction prices, et cetera, et cetera. And they controlled every aspect of the citrus market in Sicily. So when they came here and with all these Italians now that are working and dominating particular places because of their work ethic, they just slid right into place and said, wow, we could take this over. And they did time and time again. It wouldn't have been easier. I, you know, I can't stress that enough. If they didn't have the Italian Americans the legal, the legitimate ones breaking their backs, it would have been a lot more difficult. It's hard for a few mafiosos from Sicily to show up at the dock and tell a bunch of Germans and Irish, we're taking over here. You know, the Germans and Irish would have hit them over the head with uh, 
you know, with, with pitchforks and, and shovels, you know, or whatever, you know, ice picks, whatever they, you know, whatever they uh, had at hand. So it's a lot easier when the dock is already infested with Italian labor. It makes it a lot easier. And that's how the mafiosos continue to spread out and take over things across the country in the very beginning. Uh, but they took a lot of that wherewithal from Sicily, where they, they controlled a lot of things in Sicily. Italians worked mines in the Midwest. And a lot of them came from Sicily working sulfur mines in Sicily. So, you know, if you work in a sulfur mine for the last 20 years in Sicily, you get on a boat and you go to the United States, you're looking for work. Somebody tells you you could go work in a coal mine down south or, uh, or another type of mine in the Midwest, a copper mine. You get, you know, you get on a train or, you, you know, you get on your horse or, or buggy or whatever and you go. And that's a lot of them did that. So a lot of them, and then the mafia rode in too. So that's sort of like what happened. They just spread like, like locusts across the country in so many different ways like that. And eventually, you know, there was different rackets they got into during Prohibition. They were, they were in a premier place to produce bootleg gin, bootleg uh, booze rather, all kinds of booze. So they, and they partnered with the Jews in that instance where the Jews were really, really savvy. Uh, the Jews, by the way, were the perfect partners for the Italians because at the same time the Italian immigrant wave was coming into the United States, a lot of Jews from Eastern Europe were fleeing pogroms. Uh, they, hey, America's a great place. Let's go there. Let's try to. And a lot of the 99.9% of those Jews just wanted to work hard and make a better life for themselves and have, you know, they were looking for the promised land uh, when they lost that, you know, feeling, you know, obviously it's, this is before the creation of Israel. So they felt safe in Eastern Europe until they didn't feel safe. So now they got to leave there. And now they find America and they're happy here and they're working there. They're pouring out their blood and sweat on, you know, on, uh, in every different industry, the Jews are. And then the same thing happened. There were Jewish gangsters who capitalized on that. Uh, a lot of the garment industry was, was, Jew- was fueled by Jewish labor. And a lot of the early Jewish gangsters then mobilized the unions to, to, to figure, you know, figure out how do we capitalize on this? And then they partnered with the Italians and prohibition is a perfect example where the Italians and Jews basically controlled the entire market. Uh, and then after prohibition, when it was repealed, they had deep pockets, the Italian mafia did and the Jews, and they continued to, to remain partners as they opened up casinos uh, throughout the country in places where either it was legal or illegal that they, they opened up casinos, but that's sort of like, and then eventually Vegas uh, sprung up and, Vegas was also to an Italian-Jewish partnership that, that, that all brought that about. So can I ask you about New Orleans police chief Dave Hennessy's battle with the New Orleans mob? Mm-hmm. How did that whole drama begin? So Dave Hennessy was obviously a product of his, his, his location, of his time, etc. And I feel... There could not have been a cop in that position who wasn't crooked. So a lot of people, I didn't, you know, I, I went into this again with a lot of people will never tarnish Hennessy's name. He's just an innocent cop who was killed. But if you look at the deep, deeper picture of what was happening in New Orleans at the time, Dave Hennessy was a cop who he had murderous duels with other people who wanted the job. You know, the 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 top cop in New Orleans usually got it through, I, I list a, a, a sec, several sequences of murders that took place on the way to the top cop position. So at one point or another, Hennessy and his cousin killed somebody who was vying for the top cop position. They blew his brains out. So when Hennessy took over finally under a crooked mayor, he partnered with at least one bordello he owned with the mob, 
with this guy, Joseph Provenzano. And he was partners with Provenzano, who was a mobster. A lot of people say, no, Provenzano was just a legitimate guy who got caught up with the mafia. He was a mobster, Provenzano. And Provenzano was having a head-on battle with this guy, Matranga. And what happened was Hennessy, who was partners in illegal ventures with Provenzano, and who had killed his way to the top, Hennessy did. That's evidence. That's proven for anybody who might say, no, Hennessy was a clean guy, a great guy. He killed his way to the top. It's, it's, it's proven. He was tried for murder, and people couldn't even believe he got off. But whatever the case was, he was partners with Italian organized criminals. And at some point or another, when Matrango and Provenzano have this beef and they lock horns, Hennessy weighs in on the side of Provenzano, and he takes Provenzano's back. And Matrango feels isolated. He feels like the guy he's vying with for control of the Italian underworld, Provenzano, has the entire police force now through Hennessy in his pocket and behind him, allied with him, I should say, because he didn't have Hennessy in his pocket. They were allies. And at that point, I believe from all the evidence that Matranga made the crucial mistake of putting out a hit on Hennessy. And I do believe Matranga was behind the hit. I do believe that people who disliked Hennessy and were high up in politics were aligned with Matranga to give him the confidence to make this move. But it backfired because the people loved Hennessy. And they came out and they they took it as an Italian, a bunch of, you know, swarthy, quote unquote, swarthy Italians is what they were called in the press, killed their, you know, their reputable cop. That was sort of how it was painted in the press. And the problem was a lot of innocent Italians were beaten and eventually killed because of that, because the, the, the town just, the city just revolted. And when the Italians were acquitted at trial by a non-Italian jury, who weighed the evidence and and they were not bribed. There was uh, instances where they thought they were going to be bribed and stuff. So each time it was investigated, in the end, there was no proof that the jury was bribed. They just didn't feel the evidence was there to convict all of these innocent Italians. They probably should have convicted Matranga, who did it, but Matranga was mysteriously let off by the judge who threw his case out before the, the verdict came in, which is interesting. So then the verdict comes in for the remaining people who were innocent most of them, and they're acquitted. And at that point, they just, the the New Orleans, the populace in New Orleans runs uh, an ad in the newspaper that says, let's meet tomorrow at the Henry Clay statue. Henry Clay being the the, uh, quote unquote, great compromiser who tried to avert the civil war before it happened in America, uh, Senator, Senator Henry Clay. And Clay, they met at the Clay statue. And from there, they, they riled up the crowd uh, and once they did, they marched on the prison where the Italians who were acquitted were being held. They should not have been held in a prison. They were acquitted. They were supposedly held on other other little uh, technicalities, but they should have been released, and they weren't. So then they stormed the prison, uh, this lynch squad did, and they blew everybody's brains out. And somehow, once again, Matranga was let go. Uh, the, the lynch mob that killed all of the other Italians said, hey, the judge let off Matranga and we shall honor the judge. Let's let Matranga go. So it's a little strange that they're letting the only certified mob guy, Mafia Don, who's tiptoeing around the bodies of all these dead Italians, they're letting him go not only in the courtroom, but also in the midst of a lynching. They let him walk out. So it's it's funny that the only real Mafia Don you have, you don't kill, but you kill all these other Italians in the name of the Mafia, in the name of squashing out the Mafia. So, you know, there's a lot of like really interesting components to this puzzle. And I tried to lay it out as best I could uh, 
in those in the pages of the book and tried to get at what in many instances hasn't been said yet. And I provide evidence then to show that this is this is almost certainly what occurred. It was uh, October of 1890 when Hennessy was ambushed and killed by sawed-off, shotgun-wielding assassins. And his killers were never identified, correct? No, they were never identified. It was a dark street. It was rainy. They just rounded up Italians at will. You know, anybody who they thought might be guilty, they rounded them up. The At one point or another, the jury during the trial was brought to the area where it occurred, where the, where the crime occurred and where the murder happened. And they, they said, there's nothing you couldn't see. You can't see in the dog. There's no way anyone was identified here. So there was definitely, it was definitely, um, you know, they tried to railroad him. And the jury saw, saw this. There was a lot of innocent Italians on the indictment. This is not to say something did not, of course, he was killed. Something happened to him. I do believe Matrango ordered the hit. I do believe that somehow some hitmen were involved. It just seems like the real mafiosos walked away from this because they had deep connections in the political sphere. And the poor, innocent Italians who were just rounded up were the ones who ended up getting acquitted and then lynched. A lot of times what the mafia did had a direct effect on hardworking Italian-Americans. And I always wanted to make that distinction. They were stigmatized. You know, when I grew up, every guy who owned a pizzeria was thought to be in the mafia. Of course, that wasn't the case. There were a couple of guys who owned pizzerias that were involved in organized crime. But for the most part, they were just family people making pizzas, throwing dough in the air and singing an Italian song as they did it. You know, you walk in, you order a pie, you order a you know, bottle of Coke and you go. And they went home at night after breaking their backs and that was it. But because of what some someone called at some point or another, the, the pizza connection was prosecuted when a lot of pizzerias were involved in, in drug distribution in the United States in I think the, the 80s, the 1980s, um, all the pizzerias were stigmatized. So every pizzeria was thought to be connected to the mafia. And every pizzeria was was thought to have not only uh, uh, mozzarella and powder and, uh, and uh, yeast in the back, but also heroin. You know, and that wasn't the case. So a lot of Italians then suffered because of that. So, you know, time and time again, you know, we suffer for the worst of us. That's just the way the, the world is, you know, for, for, uh, for as tolerant as we always try to be, it just always happens that way. And it's very sad. Yeah. So yeah, th- this lynching, it forces the New Orleans mafia to, to basically recede into the shadows. Yeah. Um, and then things resurface again in full force in New York City. Yes. Yes and no. So basically I move over to New York City and they did, they learned their lesson in New Orleans. They sort of did recede into the shadows and they, they took a step back and they said, we don't need the limelight. This is bad. You know, this is like the last thing we need. This is international news. This cop gets killed. So they really smartened up at that point. So the rest of the, the rest of the book, we move around to other different places and we don't return to New Orleans to the beginning of volume, volume one. And at the beginning of volume one, I do a little bit of backstory so the reader knows what's happened in New Orleans since then. But also, too, New Orleans becomes front and center. The drama unfolds, book volume two unfolds, the drama unfolds in New Orleans. That's the first place we are again. Uh, and it's, and it, it lifts its head in the most grotesque way. And that's sort of, you know, this, this is, to me, I had a lot of fun reading and researching New Orleans in volume two. And then we obviously moved to other places too, but the biggest place, I think, the biggest event that takes place 
takes place either in New Orleans or as a result of the people in New Orleans, the mobsters. And that's really interesting. That's the beginning of volume two. That starts. But yeah, so it's sort of they recede into the shadows. We shift over to New York as the book moves forward. And then we go to Las Vegas. We go to Cuba. We follow the mob wherever it went. I did like that. If we read, if I read a Roman history or a history of the Roman Empire, you know, you might follow Caesar to Gaul. You might follow Scipio Africanus to, to North Africa. Uh, you, you know, you follow where the story goes. You know, if you're reading uh, uh, Greek history, Macedonian history, you follow Alexander the Great, you know, in his travels. So I followed the story wherever it took us. And, and I, I felt like that was, that was like, to me, I like that too, because it keeps, it keeps it moving geographically and you see the reach they had and, and their reach was almost like, that's why I call it rise of empire. It was very similar to the rise of the Roman empire, the way they did, the way they laid down flags you know, and, and, and took over here and they were cons- almost like provinces. At one point or another, there were 24 mafia borgatas in as many metropolitan areas throughout the United States. And then it, this would have been a 12 volume work, you know, so I agonized over which borgatas to include and when. So I tried to keep the story moving by if that, if this particular borgata in this particular city had a large impact on the overall story, I followed it there. If they sort of faded, a lot of these borgatas became small or kept low key, didn't have a larger impact on the bigger tapestry, then I would have to skip over them, almost like MacArthur Island hopping in the South Pacific. You know, you, you skip over certain pieces if you have to. You know, he skipped over islands if he had to. So, you know, it's sort of like agonizing over which to include and which not. But um, but I think I did, you know, in the end, I think I did a good job of moving the pieces around and watching how they go and how they dominate, take over the entire country. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a monumental task uh, taking on history like this. And what's unique and entertaining about your book is that you interject your own sense of humor, and it makes the history accessible. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. Thank you. I always wanted, I like to write where it's the same way, as closest to the way I talk. You know, it should. It, you should feel like you're sitting in a pub with me. And we're, you know, we're, we're just having a beer and we're talking about the mafia and you're shooting questions at me. I think that that's the best sort of like, for me, that's what I like to read. I like to feel like it's somebody very conversational. Obviously, the early chapters are more academic. I had no choice but to do that, to explain things. You know, it's fact, it's, it's this, it's that, it's this, I'm building evidence. But then as the storytelling comes into the fore, then I, I, do, I do just like to, I try my hardest to just write like as, as close it's as if we were just having a conversation. One more brief break, back momentarily. And we have returned for the final time. So I, I want to change the subject and ask you about your Discovery Channel show from a few years ago. Can, can you tell us more about it? Sure. So the show was commissioned out of London. I was, I was on a book tour in London, and I had done a couple of BBC interviews, Sky News, and at some point or another, a production company contacted me and said, hey, we'd, we'd love to do something with you. Would you like to go inside prisons? And I said, well, not really. You know, <laughs> the last place I'd rather go inside. <laughs> but, uh, but it was an opportunity to do real investigative journalism. Like people contact me with these, you know, bada bing, bada boom type ideas. I don't like that. I don't want to get involved in that stuff. I, but anything fruitful, productive, I'm all in. So I felt like if you could give the viewer an inside look at the subculture, prison, uh, the people, 
and show that as bad as some of them are, and some of them really are bad, they're human at the core. We all have the same God, right? Uh, it's, it's unfortunate to uh, that you know we don't like to, to, to sort of confront the very truth that the same God that created uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa also created Jeffrey Dahmer, but it's a fact. You know, there's, there's, so there's one God. So I wanted to give the view of, you know, these people and all of their, in all of their, you know, in, in, in all honesty and all of their faults and, and, and anything, you know, just show the viewer. So I, I loved it. I jumped at the chance. I thought it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it, this was a great opportunity. Wow. So we went around the world and we went to some of the, the highlights was we went to El Salvador and at the time, El Salvador was completely overrun with gangs. And the, mo- the two m- biggest gangs were 18th Street and um, MS-13. And we, we got an inside look. We went into the jungles of Azalco. And I was able to lock in with the prisoners, 600 murderers. And they're all sworn murderers. You have, to be, you have to murder somebody to get into the gang. Every one of them is murdered. And El Salvador was such a, a murderous place at the time that there were like 20-something murders a day in San Salvador alone directly attributed to the gangs. So this is the environment that like literally we just landed in. Um, but I locked into the prison, Azalco prison, and um, I got along with them really well because I told them straight up, look, I've walked in your shoes. I was a criminal. My whole life was a crime in progress. I've been to prison like you are now. I lived in a hell like you are living in now. And I, and I never ratted. They want to make sure that, you know, that's big to them. I never snitched, never informed. I had every opportunity to. I refused. So they're like, okay. So they welcomed me into their world because of that. But I did also tell them, I'm an investigative journalist now. You know, I'm here, I'm here as an investigative journalist. I might ask you questions that are uncomfortable. Don't think of me as, you know, uh, an enemy or a rat or, you know, how does he ask that? Think of me as a journalist and you don't want to answer, just don't answer because I'm on this side of the fence now. So they understood. I made that clear to them. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to go in there with any secrets. And the access was incredible that they gave me. And those, we made five episodes. They continue to run those episodes for the last, like, I think it's close to 10 years now. They run somewhere in the world every single week. I get emails from somebody somewhere who saw it. And they repeat it here all the time. They'll run a marathon here on either the American Heroes channel or Discovery. Um, so they always repeat it. And one of the one of the big places we went to was the Philippines. When I landed in the Philippines, it was a prison that supposedly had 20-something thousand people, which I found hard to believe. I've been in prisons with a couple of thousand people. I couldn't imagine 20,000. And it was called New Bilibid Prison. And it was. We went in there, me and my film crew, and it, it turned out to be the prisoners were running their own prison. They were sort of like they had batons, they had their own police force, and I, I was like amazed at this. Well, we did such a good job on that dock, and I got such deep access to the gang leaders inside that prison who were controlling the prison, that afterwards, I come home back to the United States, and I started to get emails that you flipped the government in the Philippines. I said, no. They said the, the, the documentary went viral. What we did was we uncovered at one point or another the close connections the gang leaders inside the Bilibid prison had, new Bilibid prison had, with politicians who were in office. And when we uncovered that, I didn't think anything of it. We were just uncovering another piece of evidence. I thought that that sort of like shows another form of, you know, the, 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 the deep tentacles of gang life of the underworld. And that's all really what we were doing. But they said it went viral and they said it took off and 
you now you now you flip the government in the Philippines. So I kind of like I don't know. These are just emails. Who knows? And believe it or not, I was busy writing my books, probably the trilogy, and I didn't really do any real deep research until I got somebody from the Manila Times who said, you flipped the government. I want to do a story. Can you talk to me? And I talked to him and I said, how? And then I was invited shortly thereafter by Duterte, who took over from the, he ousted the Aquinos. He got rid of the Aquinos and Rodrigo Duterte took over the Philippines. And I got an email from, I think it was Duterte's secretary or the secretary of something saying, inviting me to, on behalf of Duterte, to the Philippines to watch the documentary in front of Congress. So I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So (laughs) yeah. So I mean, in the end, there's, I'll direct your readers, there's an excellent Time Magazine article on this entire affair. Time Magazine's World Desk covered it. And I urge people to look for it. It's put in Ferrante slash Duterte slash Time Magazine. You should find it. And basically Duterte used it as a propaganda tool. So I was not obviously in favor in going and watching the documentary with him. I know that a lot of the Philippine people love Duterte. I know that there are quite a few things he did to benefit the country, but his eradication of crime was completely, I was against everything he did in so much as he he dispensed with the rule of law, habeas corpus, and just basically was killing people. He was having his cops go out as vigilantes. Uh, If there were you know, five or six suspected suspected gangsters hanging out on a corner with five or six girlfriends or friends or family, they just mowed them all down. So there was no, you know, he was just like out of control, I felt, you know, and I'm, look, I'm for justice in every which way. I'm on this side of the fence now. I'm no longer a criminal. There are people who do belong in jail. And I'm for, I'm in favor of a stern hand if you deserve it. If you commit a heinous crime, you deserve to go to jail, just as I deserved to go to jail. And I did go to jail for a long time. And I knew I deserved to be there, which is part of the reason why I didn't rat. I said, I belong here. I know I belong here. I I made these decisions and now I'm being punished. That's life. But uh, I I do not believe also too, at the same time, I do not believe in innocent people dying, innocent people being railroaded. And I don't believe in such firm justice that it outweighs the crime, which is a lot of times what we have in this country. But it was to the, obviously to, to a degree that was unbearable in the Philippines where he's just killing innocent people. So obviously I didn't go, obviously I wasn't in favor of his government because of that, because of his flagrant abuse of human rights. But then again, too, I did speak to a lot of Philippine people who said, well, he finally cleaned up you know, this disaster that we had for so long, it was so horrible here. You couldn't even get on a, 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 a chitney or a chutney, one of those buses in Manila without being stuck up, you know, and now we can, now we could ride the buses. And so I understand where they're coming from, but I don't think they're thinking deep enough. Like I am, it's easier for me. I'm removed from the scene. I don't believe in, in, in abusing human rights in any way. I believe in the rule of law. I think you have to, you have to keep that as, as you could clean up the streets without going that far. And I think I wish that's what he had done. I wished he would have, you know, focused on cleaning it up by thinking a little on how to do it without having to kill innocent people or anybody, put them in jail, give them a chance to reform themselves like I had, but it's not necessary to mow people down. That was something that was a little extraordinary, even for me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, this has been excellent. So you do have a website. I'll include a link in the show notes. And you've got a lot of information there. Yeah, there's a lot there. It's LouisFerrante.com, L-O-U-I-S-F-E-R-R-A-N-T-E.com. 
Uh, you could find my books there. Uh, you could find a little bit about my backstory if you're interested. And uh, I welcome everybody. If you feel like dropping me an email, feel free. I do get back to people. Sometimes I'm inundated and it takes me a few days, sometimes a week too. But I do get back to people um, almost always, if not always. And thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you putting a link up for everyone. I urge people to read the Bogata Trilogy. If you're into this stuff and you like the, you know, the mafia, it's I, I I feel I've I've you know it's seven going on eight years in the making. I feel like I've done something that's that's as they as they've said at the publishers groundbreaking. I hope so. Right, and if people are just interested in, in learning more about you and your life, right? You talk more about yourself in the book I mentioned earlier, Mob Rules. Yeah, I do. Also, I wrote I wrote a memoir, Unlocked. Um, it, it goes through a lot of like, it, you see the crimes I was committing, every crime that I talk about in my memoir, although I used, uh, I changed names and I changed identifying facts. It's all based on stuff I was charged with. You know, I mean, I remembered conversations as best I could, but obviously my, my mind is in a tape recorder. So I had to ad lib sometimes with conversations to, you know, to, to, to create dialogue so that you would have an understanding of what was going on at that time. Um, but for the most part, you know, it, it, it's all documented. It's all true. Other than, like I said, changing, identifying facts and names of people who would probably want to kill me if they, if I would have put their name out there. Um, so that said, that's, there is a memoir out there. It's called tough guy in the UK unlocked in the United States. Then there's mob rules, which also goes in a little bit into my story. Uh, I talk about stuff that I witnessed firsthand, but a lot of the stuff is just mob history in there, which you'll enjoy. And also to world history, Sometimes I'll, I'll reinforce a story that I'm talking about mob history, then I give a lesson for business, and then I might reinforce the point by using something from world history, uh, whether it be you know King John II or King Henry VIII or whatever, or whoever. You know, I'll use a little something like a vignette to show that this is how it should be done, and this is how it was done, or this is how it wasn't done. I sort of like structured that in, in the sense of like uh, Plutarch's lives, where Plutarch points out the vices and virtues of great men. I do the same thing with mafia dons. If they did something wrong, I show you what they did wrong. If they did something right, I show you what they did right. And then you're free to then apply it, whatever lesson you might draw from it for your real life when you strip away the violence, of course. One of the the hardest things about writing a book is sitting down, getting rid of the distractions and just forcing yourself, even if you don't feel like it, just just to do it, to work on it. Yeah. Did, did your time in prison help you with this? Did your you time lock- it, Eric. Yeah, you, you just nailed, you hit the nail on the head, Eric. I, I was the most fidgety guy you've ever met in your life. I had ADD. I think I still have it to some sense. I, my, my mind will fly in 10 different directions during the day. Uh, I can't stay focused for five minutes sometimes. But prison did teach me to isolate myself and focus on what I want to do. You know, you, when you're stuck in a cell, you can't go anywhere. There's nowhere you can go. So you, I learned the hard way. Patience. You know, if you told me a book will take three or four years to write, this took seven, going on eight. If you told me that before I went to prison, I would say, I, what? I want immediate gratification now. I hijack a truck because I got the load in my hands a minute later. I steal a car and break up the parts and deliver it to a collision shop because it all takes place in one hour. So you couldn't tell me something's going to take years. It's the reason why I couldn't go to college. I couldn't go to university. Four years, what? For a bachelor? 
How many years for a PhD? I ain't got that time. Can't do that. So in prison, I'm locked in a cell. I'm not going anywhere for years. And I was able then through that experience to sort of like train myself or became trained. You know, I, I, I shouldn't credit myself. Became trained, maybe by higher power, to really, really just focus on and and ignore all distractions. You don't have any in there. And that's what I did to myself when I wrote Borgata. I pretty much locked myself in a room, glued myself to a desk and knew that I was going to be there for years. And I just went for it. Um, when COVID came around and we had the lockdowns, you know, people are telling me, we're locked down, we're locked down. I was like, who's locked down? I've been locked down for like how many years already? Like I didn't even feel it. I've been locked down, you know? So like <laughs> it was nothing to me, you know, the quarantine. I've been quarantined at my self-quarantined at my desk already years before this. So, you know, I was able, because of that though, discipline, I think from a prison cell, it was easier for me to say, okay, I know I got to get something done and I don't need all the distractions. I don't need uh, you know, big social life. I didn't have a social life when I was in prison. I could shut it off now. And I did that. I knew that, you know, you just, uh, it's hard. It's hard to stay focused. A lot of people I know who would like to write books and tell me for years that they want to write a book. I think a lot of the big problems that they have getting there is the distractions. You know, a lot of it's and a lot of people raising families, it's legitimate distractions. A lot of people, you might have a woman who has two jobs and she's a single mother and she'd love to write a book. She might be a great author. You know, she could be the next uh, Charlotte Bronte, but is she ever going to get the opportunity to do that is a different story. So, you know, I feel for those people, you know, life gets in the way. Um, yeah. But I have learned through prison discipline to, to just like lock myself in a room and go for it. You know, don't come out till it's done. Sometimes I'd be in the room 12 hours and, you know, I'd come out and go, oh, I need a meal. <laughs> you know, and then it's time to go to bed and wake up and do it again. But I kept doing it. You know, sometimes you lose your mind, you need a break. But, but for the most part, I kept with it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's That was a good question. I'm glad you asked it. You know, that sort of came from prison. It was one of the benefits of being a prisoner for so long. When I was in prison for so long and in a prison cell for so long, sometimes they take your privileges away and they keep you locked in the cell. So a lot of times people will go bananas. It's almost like a zoo where if we're locked in our cells on the tier block, we're literally like a row of chimps banging at the bars, you know, and, and, and screaming and yelling. And, and, you know, that's what we all are. We're reduced to that. And I was one of those chimps for a long time until I found books and started reading and fell in love with books. And then I just like lay in my cell and I'd be like, who cares? The cell door opens. It doesn't open. What do I care? I'm, so I'm staying in here with my book all day anyway. And then I would hear all of this tumult going on around me, all of the screaming and yelling and cursing when we were locked in. And I just had my feet up on my bunk and I'm flipping my pages and I'm going and it didn't mean anything to me. And sometimes when the door opened, everybody raced out of their cells and they'd come into my cell and go, Louie, what are you coming out? Going, we're going to the yard. And I'm like, nah, pass. How are you going to pass? We've been locked down for two weeks. I don't care. I'm good. Thanks. Talk to you later. Maybe I'll catch it tomorrow. So that's sort of like I trained myself, I think, by I didn't want them to have that over me. And I didn't, you know, like, I didn't want to turn into a chimp anymore, you know, screaming at my, you know, reaching through the bars and, you know, the whole thing was, was it's inhuman what they do to us at times when we become inhuman, you know, whatever the situation is, whether they do it on purpose or not, or it's just an accident of, of circumstances, we become in, in a sense an inhuman. And I didn't like it when I was reading, I didn't want to be inhuman anymore. And, and you could argue that it was inhuman to just sit in my cell and not, you know, be affected by, the outside environment that in a sense, that's inhuman too. 
but I felt like it was more humanity because I had my nose in a book than just like being at the whims of whoever my captors were. Yeah. Well, well, this has been so great. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. I, I really uh, appreciated it and, and enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope to come back for volume two. Again, my guest has been Lou Ferrante. His book is called Borgata, Rise of Empire, The History of the American Mafia, Volume 1. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.